Good morning, everybody. I'm Larry Jacobs. This is Pre-K-12 Education Talk Radio. It is uh, January 17, 2024. Now, we've got two wonderful professors here going to talk to us about something called Rightful Presence. That's right. Something I never heard of until I saw their book called Teaching Toward Rightful Presence in Middle School STEM. I've got Drs. Edna Tan and, and uh, Angela Calabrese-Barton with us today. We're going to have a nice conversation about what rightful presence is, how it matters. You know, we're so concerned about making sure kids understand STEM, okay, how it matters in terms of social justice, who these kids are, et cetera, et cetera. They're going to explain it far more, far better than I ever will. We're going to archive the show over at ace-ed.org. That's the home website of our American Consortium for Equity and Education. I hope you go over there and check out everything we do, ace-ed.org. Everything over there is free. So please check out our magazine, which is called Equity and Access. We have our uh, Equity Awards program. We have a lot of wonderful information in every podcast we've ever done. It's over there as well. There we go. My voice is a little better now. I just moved the microphone. I was wondering what was going on. By the way, I had COVID last week. I'm still recovering. I feel fine. Okay, thank you, both Ed and Angela. Yes, I feel fine. Okay, but um, it takes a little while for my voice to get back, etc. So bear with me. That's why we had to cancel a couple of, of, of podcasts last week, and we're going to reschedule all of those. So I'm glad this one is right timely, and we're we're happy to be doing it right on time. And let me bring my two wonderful guests on, one in beautiful and warm North Carolina, and the other, just like I'm in Maine, she's in freezing Michigan. So let me say hello to her first. Hi, Angela. It's Larry here. Hey, Larry. How are you? Staying warm? I'm staying warm here in Maine. We had about six inches of snow yesterday for a change, but now we're clear. And how's the weather in Michigan? I hear it's pretty cold in the Midwest. Yeah, we're still around minus 20 wind chill, but thankful the sun's out today. Woo, woo, woo. So I, I have a feeling your good friend Edna Tan will not be joining you in the next few weeks. Would that be correct? <laughs> I don't think so. Ed, Edna, can you hear me? <laughs> yes, I can hear you. Good morning. It is good. rather frigid in North Carolina. It's 24 degrees Fahrenheit right now. It is cold for you guys. Here in Maine, we call that springtime. <laughs> yes, we are not <laughs> used to this in the South, apparently. Yeah, I Believe me, believe me, I know you are not. And it, it's when it gets that cold in the South, it's very difficult for folks. Okay, and that's yeah, nobody's out and about. <laughs> and, and here and in Michigan, I might add, if it were 24 degree, we degrees, we'd be so happy we'd be out. We'd be out in our bathing suits, getting ready to play pickleball outside or something. That's unbelievable. Oh, I. Absolutely. You know those college kids would be out in their shorts and bikinis. Absolutely. More power to them. Okay. I have. To, I, I want to start off. So both of you. Okay. Uh, I just want to do a better introduction. Edna Tan, Dr. Tan, is the Hooks Distinguished Professor of STEM Education at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, which is 24 degrees today. Well, Dr. Angela Calabrese Barton, okay, is the is a professor at the University of Michigan. Congratulations, by the way, Larry, for the big victory. Thank you, Go Blue. <laughs> well said, Angela. Well said. Okay, professor, and she's also chair. And I was just curious about this. You're chair of the education educational studies department. Is that the same thing? 
as the education department? Yeah, it's the largest department in the School of Education. We have about um, 40 tenure-streamed faculty. What's the difference? What is educational studies? I have to ask this, versus education. Do you know what I mean? Like in the School of um, Education, then underneath is education studies. So what's education studies? Yeah, well, you can kind of think about the educational studies department as focusing on K-12. Um, mm-hmm. Both in formal and informal settings, um, we're kind of an eclectic group, bringing lots of different kinds of perspectives and questions. But our other main department is higher ed. I get it now, and thank you for that clarification. Yeah. And how? Yeah. You, uh, I'll stay with you, Angela. Talk about your book, and I want to give the title again. Okay, it's I think it's from Harvard Education Press, right? Am I correct? Harvard. Mm-hmm. Fine school, Harvard. Okay. Teaching toward rightful presence, which you have italicized in the cover here. Teaching toward rightful presence in middle mm-hmm. school STEM. All right? And I'm going to let you, Angela, and then you can bring in Ed to explain that, please. What, what, is the, what, what is rightful presence? What are we talking about here? Yeah. So um, thanks for starting with that question. We're really excited to talk about this idea of rightful presence. So if you think about a lot of the um, equity and equity initiatives in STEM education um, or education really broadly, we're really focused on policy perspectives on this notion of equity as inclusion. So I want to just unpack that for you for just a second. So When we think about equity as inclusion, we're thinking about welcoming somebody into a community, including somebody into a group or structure. And so being included usually depends on that person joining the community and having to participate on what's already established sets of norms, routines, and culture of that community. And so in STEM education, those norms, routines, and culture, they've been historically established, for the most part, grounded in whiteness, grounded in Western views, grounded in patriarchal norms. And so being included does not necessarily challenge or question those power structures. In schools, um, we find it really helpful to think about that guest host uh, metaphor. Students are welcomed as guests, with teachers or schools serving as the host. And so a teacher can extend to her students the right to participate in class, you know, including them in class, but those rights, they're grounded in in inclusion, just like I was talking about. And so Mm -hmm. you're welcome to participate on those established norms and routines, but teachers can revoke that right to participate as they see fit, because students aren't participating like they expect, they're not hewing to the established norms, and so forth. So we're really interested in equity as rightful presence because it focuses on disrupting and transforming those traditional power hierarchies. So when we talk about rightful presence, we're talking about youth having that opportunity to reauthor the right to participate, not to have to participate on these established norms that might not have even considered their um, cultural wisdom, um, histories of practice in their communities. And so, you know, I got to ask. Wait, this is very oh, interesting. Ahead. This is very yeah. interesting. Okay, I think you can swing it to Edna if you want. And I'm, I'm, this question sounds funny, but I don't want it to be. How did you realize that? How did you come up with that? That's very interesting. Okay, 
that one is pre-existing, if I may, just to keep it a little simple, and the other is a whole different sea. If I'm hearing you right, it's like a whole different sea change in the way you look at your kids. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty absolutely. cool. Yeah. Um, Edna, do you want to jump in? I, c- I can answer, but um, I've been talking for Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, Please, Edna. So to answer your question, Larry, I, I, I think this is also what we have seen in the more than two decades we've been in classroom working with teachers and youth. And to quote one of the kids who talked to us, they say when you walk into some classrooms, and this is the context of science STEM classrooms, you know they don't want you there. Now, that is something that is very powerful that a 12, 13-year-old is telling us. And when we look at and ask what they mean, uh, the youth tell us, and it doesn't matter that I am getting high grades in the science class. Uh, it doesn't matter that um, I am being recognized for what I'm doing in terms of the traditional markers of classrooms. I just don't feel that my teacher really wants me there, and I don't feel that I belong. So we've been getting these um, you know, insights from the youth that we've been working with that we really started to ask what is going on and with the reform efforts that is, you know, just firmly grounded in equity as inclusion, these young people still, you know, despite decades of these reforms are not feeling that they have a rightful presence in, in science and in STEM. What, I have to ask is what would make them feel that they do have a rightful presence? And, and, and actually, uh, Angela brought it up earlier, you know, we, we, we teach from a Western point of view, which is, if I may, a white point of view, Western Europe, that sort of thing, okay? And, I, and I'm thinking, and I'm just going to use it, and I know and the, you're, you're, you're uh, Asian, okay? We, we, don't, we don't teach medicine as acupuncture, the ancient Chinese mm-hmm. medicine. We, we teach it as modern prescription medicine. Okay, but there's a difference between the two. By the way, I love acupuncture. I go all the time. Okay, so my my point is, we're we're how do how do we get this across to people and understand who we're teaching? Okay, and, and that's really this is a, this is monumental because it's really a sea change in attitude in a, in a school or a teacher or a classroom or a school district. Okay, how do you get that across? This is really interesting. Was I right like using the agriculture and the pharmaceutical, the acupuncture and the pharmaceuticals? Is that kind of what we're thinking about here? Well, um, maybe, um, Larry, I think it might help if we um, share a few examples from classroom Do practice it. with you. Um, and I want to start off with a negative example um, because I think a lot of um, science teachers out there uh, might resonate with this example. I know um, when it, ar- it arose, like we ended up discussing this example at length in research practice partnerships with teachers because we've all been there, okay? So I wanna yeah. talk about um, Mr. A, who's a, who's a white teacher, beloved by his students, fantastic teacher. Um, I would say definitely engaged in all reform practices that um, get students thinking and talking and, and engaging in science. Um, he's teaching this unit on forensics. And there's a 12-year-old boy in his class, Samir, um, and what I'm about to tell you happens during the final crime scene investigation of this forensics unit. Um, mm-hmm. And at the time, Mr. A, he's a teacher, was explaining the importance of gathering 
and analyzing data to accurately find and convict the right criminal. So if any science teachers are out there listening, you know that gathering and analyzing data is critical science practice, and he's really zooming in on that. And so he was emphasizing, okay, we have to be fair, we have to use data as evidence, we have to make sure, you know, we're really making sound decision because this is, you know, if we convict somebody, this is their life. Um, and as he's engaging in this conversation with the student, Amir interrupts him by calling out, unless you're black. If you're black, you'll be convicted. Mm. And in that moment, Mr. Well, a, he, he yeah. seemed to be caught off guard by Amir's comment but responded right away in a really caring voice saying, I like the passion in that statement, but let's make sure we talk about that somewhere else other than this classroom at the moment. If you wanna talk about later, we absolutely can. Um, Amir, he didn't really verbally respond. He just nodded his head, seemed a little frustrated. He continued yeah. working with his friends, completed the assignment. You know, He was animated still, did the work. Um, but he never went back to his teacher and didn't talk about it, and his teacher never brought it back up in the classroom. And when we talked with Mr. A after that session, he said he knew in that moment that that moment was really important. And he told us, like, that moment hit him really quickly. He said, and I'm quoting him, like, it's a really powerful thing to say. But he it also is. talked about how talking about racism and forensics was really challenging to do, especially in a front of a whole group of students. And that classroom's pretty diverse. It's about, you know, 30% white, about 30% um, black, um, and the 30, other 30% was probably mixed like Latinx and um, Asian. Sure. And he didn't want to do that in front of students from all different kinds of backgrounds. And this is sixth grade, I should have mentioned that, since sixth grade. Um, and he also remember, wow. he said, you know, he gave him, he gave him a mirror smile he didn't want him to think that what he said was wrong, like really wanting to embrace it. Um, but he also explained that he thought Amir understood that science class was, quote, not a place to bring up politics. So let's just hmm. unpack that for a second. Yeah. Here we have Mr. Yeah. Ray, right? He is the institutional representative of the right to high quality science teaching. And he welcomed Amir. He included Amir as he extended those rights to participate. But in that moment, Mr. A, he was not willing to engage with Amir to reauthor the rights in his learning community. Even when Amir's comment put those rights in tension with the political mm -hmm. struggle of being black in the white-dominated spaces of criminal justice and the white-dominated spaces of STEM. So that's an example of not being rightfully present, but a youth bidding for it. He was asking, please, can we engage in what we call allied political struggle, this idea that we have to renegotiate power in terms of what discourses matter in this space. Mr. A wasn't prepared. And he no, knew he wasn't prepared. It's hard to be prepared for. Yeah. So i got to ask this, and this is really interesting, because as I always say, the world of education is changing. Okay? The kids are changing. All right? The, the social if I may, is changing. And the kid, the, the, Amir, should, should challenge him. Okay, I think that's great. Okay? Uh, my, my curiosity okay, now is, and Edna, I'm going to ask you this. You're a professor of STEM education. Do you think this is, and I love this rightful presence idea. Okay? Do you, and I'm, by the way, I should say, I'm an old social studies teacher. 
okay? And my curiosity is, A, I understand from Ender, but why, why STEM? Why do you think it's so important in STEM, okay? And B, to me, it's the beautiful opportunity to break down silos between education departments and bring in social studies and whatever else the case may be. I, I, I'm, this is really interesting. Ender, well, what's your thoughts on yeah. that? Why is STEM important? Um, because STEM occupies no, I, know why, I know why STEM is important. No, no. Let me let me. Refer. I know why STEM is important. Believe me. Okay, that's not my point. My point is, and I know you're a STEM professional, but this 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 rightful presence idea goes way beyond STEM education. Oh yes, it, it does. Goes, it definitely yeah, that, does. That's what I'm asking. Yeah. Your, your right. Thoughts, so we please. we uh, we drew from scholars who study uh, sanctuary cities with refugees. So the rightful presence framework actually comes from that field, right? Refugee oh. migration, immigration, whole cities, right? So it's definitely out of the you know the the, the narrow um, field of science education research uh, for sure. And we also see that for the youth that we work with and the teachers who work with them, when they're bidding for rightful presence, they're not necessarily launching from a very narrowly constricted, immediately recognizable STEM perspective. So another example in a classroom, uh, in the poorest congressional district in New York City, where we were in the school for more than five years with this also really good teacher, Mr. M, white uh, white male. He grew up around the area, but you know he is strictly middle class. And his students were doing a unit on nutrition. And when Mr. M was going by the script of what is in the standards, right? What are the classes of nutrients you have to get go, get from to be healthy? The students were silently scoffing, right? Because they were saying that you don't have um, you don't have our reality. If you looked around where we can get on foot, because these kids don't have money to get on subways, and where we have access to what kinds of snacks, right, that is the reality in which we live every day. And so they were able to bring this reality, right, which is connected to mm -hmm. socioeconomic status, connected to transportation needs and access into the classroom. And um, I think we talk about this in chapter four of our book, where Mr. M was really open and just redesigned, co-designed the whole entire unit with the kids. So the kids didn't bring in minerals and, you know, calories or vitamins. Yeah. They brought in, look at this local bodega that we can walk to from yeah. our school. Yeah. Look at how they lay out their snacks, where our eyes land. And this is where we need to start from if we want to talk about a rightful presence in sixth grade nutrition. Well, it's it's really so important, and I'm going to ask you this: Why did you both start? The, the, again, the book is about middle school STEM. Okay, uh, mm -hmm. why not elementary school? Uh, Edna, continue, Professor Tan. Why not? Why, why not? This is important. Oh, this is well, good stuff. It, and it, yeah. I, I love it. It's a whole change of perspective. Okay, and that's hard to do. Boy, that's hard to do. Okay, so talk to me. Why middle school? Why'd you focus on that? Uh, so part of this is connected to our own history. You know, I was a middle high school teacher in in Singapore um, for six years. Uh, so that is the age uh, by the way, I, by I, the way, I was going, I was going to with... ask you, I have to say, I was going yes. to ask you, you have a beautiful accent. And I was trying to figure out where, as you were talking, I was trying to figure out where. That Singapore is the Thank answer. Thank you, Mary. I just, I just, yeah, I, I just did a show fine. with a guy who's stationed in Singapore at the American school there and um, about two weeks ago. 
and he was talking how great it is to live there. Thank you for explaining that, but please continue. Thank you. That's very kind. Um, so, yes, I was a middle school, high school teacher in Singapore for six years, and then Angie also has worked with young people in that age group. She was working with them in an out-of-school context, and then, of course, she can speak to that. I guess that is, that is the age group that we have experienced, um, the grants that we've gotten together from the National Science Foundation. We naturally built on allies that we have relationship with, which were the middle schools and the middle school teachers. But definitely, we would argue that the rightful presence framework transcends age group and transcends space yeah. and time. Absolutely. absolutely. Without question, it does. It's, it's very important. So how do you train somebody to handle this? And I'll, go, I'll give you a break here and go back to Angela. Dr. Barton, how do you train somebody to handle this? Well, that comes, I'm going to... Um, and and your, yeah. your Mr. Ray example is, you know, the, 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 he was trying, okay? But you don't know how to handle it. How do you train somebody? A great question. We get this question from teachers and school leaders all the time. Um, and, you know, as you were saying, it involves not just different practices in the classroom. It involves like a shift in your stance to how you relate to young people and think about um, and give critical witness to their whole lives. So I want to go back for a second to Mr. Yeah, Mr. Yeah. M example that Edna was talking about, um, right. Professor Tan was talking about. And so one of the things that Mr. M ended up doing was collaborating with the students in his classroom. He held co-design sessions during lunch with a subset of the kids in his class who wanted to do this with him series of lunch meetings that got to go get their lunch, bring it back to the classroom, eat with Mr. M, and basically look <laughs> at the nutrition unit with them. And they not only critique going to be learning, they came up with ideas for their own lessons. And so one idea, building on the bodega example, is they wanted to do the $2 challenge, where he gave each group of kids $2. They would walk together to the, um, one of the local favorite local bodegas um, and try to pick out the best, healthiest snacks that they could with the amount of money, which they felt was a reasonable $2, um, and what the place offered. And then they came back, they analyzed those snacks given the you know, STEM criteria that they were studying in their nutrition unit, and then built a case for, like, how can we be thinking about um, nutrition and making healthy choices given the constraints of our lives? And Mr. M enacted that lesson with his class as well as others that kids came up with. Um, and that was a really powerful example of young people saying, hey, look, my life, my whole life matters. You need to give critical yeah. witness to everything that I experience because it matters. They still learned the science of nutrition, but it looked a little bit different. They had to renegotiate um, how we can think about good decision-making, um, given that, you know, you don't have access to that farmer's market where you can buy all that fancy organic stuff. Like that, you're preferring it if you're on food stamps or SNAP or whatever it is you might have, and also doing the same thing with the school lunches, right, and the school breakfasts. And so forth. And so, so that is one example of how do you work with teachers to engage in practices that work towards or see rightful presence. One is co-designing with young people. Another is um, something that we call um, community uh, 
pedagogies of community ethnography or community ethnography pedagogies. And so community ethnography, what is that? Well, that's like um, going out, um, talking to people, observing, you know, using all the tools of ethnography to try to understand something about culture and community. Well, what if you use those tools as a part of your teaching? Could you imagine yeah, ways that yeah. you could integrate community ethnography as an everyday part of teaching? We love this practice because it's actually quite easy to integrate into all different kinds of lessons, and it positions students as experts of their communities. Like, especially, you know, when we think like about from urban education, most teachers who teach in urban schools are not from those communities, right. right? And so they don't have the long-term relationships with the people or the organizations there. They don't necessarily know or quite understand youth sense of place there. Um, and it gives, it forces teachers to be co-learners with students <laughs> who yeah. are the experts of these spaces. So I have to ask this then, then what are you? hearing okay and i'll ask you Ange, but you can turn it back over to edna okay if you want to what are you hearing from teachers okay and how's that this is really interesting because we got to engage kids we have to engage kids okay and this really engages them and it invites them to help create the curriculum and get the get the, get the information across okay how are teachers mm -hmm. reacting when you talk to them about this you know i'm i'm gonna say that um by and large um at the beginning, teachers are nervous, right? They're nervous because they're having to literally be in classrooms in a different way, that sharing authority, sharing power can be really hard um, for many teachers, especially if you're established. Um, and we work with a lot of experienced teachers as well as beginning teachers. But after they go through like a whole unit where they engage in some of these practices, they'll say things like one teacher, 33 years experience, says, I never thought about it this way and broke down in tears. Yeah, I think it's great. Another teacher, another teacher, um, you know, seven years experience um, said, you know, this whole unit um, opened my eyes to what she called grow and glow moments. I don't know if that comes through clearly That's enough cute. through the phone, grow yeah. and glow. And yeah. here she was talking about her students, students, students who were disengaged in her classroom, and we could think about disengagement here as like, you know what, I don't want to participate on the terms that um, diminish my cultural wisdom and community forms of knowledge. Um, she saw them glowing because they had opportunities for their expertise, not just to be a part of that classroom, but to shine as um, like integral, what it actually means to be an expert in STEM. And grow, she was talking about herself. Like, I had to grow as a teacher to begin to learn more about not just my students, but about, like, how my own neuroviews of science constrained my students. And so that grow and glow um, is something that's her terms, one particular teacher's terms, but we hear, like, aspects of that coming from lots of different participating teachers. Edna, you want to chime in on that? Go ahead, Edna. Yeah. Um, so I, we also write in our book, I think we use the term political clarity. I think a lot of the teachers that we work with, they start to develop um, political clarity. So what that means, what it entails for their own students. So for another teacher, 
you know, these uh, teacher mantra truisms that are deeply held, right? Like all kids can learn, kids are kids. When kids come into my classroom, I expect them to pay attention. That is the baseline we start from. Um, some of our teachers have had to revisit these mantras and to, to unpack them and think about the fact that, well, not all kids come to the classroom, my classroom, really ready to be, to learn because the basic needs are not met. So, for example, in our engineering for sustainable unit, uh, community unit, the students were talking about what, what they label and name as sustainable communities. And in one of the schools, the students across the board said, like, we, it is unsustainable that we don't have clean bathrooms. It is unsustainable yeah. that there is yeah. bathroom bullying. And I end up holding my bladder for most part of the school day, and that is unsustainable because I cannot function and I, I cannot focus. Right, so like we know as adults that you can't focus if you're holding your bladder. So why is it why is it not important to a kid in a middle school? One of the projects, the girls invited the teacher to their uh, middle school bathroom, where, which was built in the 40s, and, and kids yeah. are much smaller then, so the doors are really short, and there's no way you no, can have any privacy from walking yeah. in, yeah. closing the door, contorting your body, right? And so there was a lot of bullying that was going on in the bathroom that the teachers were not privy to, and the teachers were, it was an eye-opening moment for them, right? And this is yeah. a female teacher, and she could walk in, but she said, I have no occasion. I don't want to walk into a kid's bathroom. Why would I do that? Uh, but it was a shift in, in her paradigm, right? Where, like, exactly. wow, these kids really are having very exactly. basic needs, biological needs, and not met in the school space and in the school day. And that is impacting the learning. And how do we integrate oh, yeah. these very compelling issues with what is going on in our science classroom? So for these girls, they ended up building a door extender that they could put onto the cubicle, extend the door for privacy. That was their project. Yeah, that's a darn good. That is an excellent project, and and I love it. Okay, that that's happening, and you got it. The cultures out there are changing. Okay, and I have to ask you both a question. You're both in schools of education. Okay, and this is a this is a question I ask a lot. Everybody complains. Everybody complains that the schools of education are behind what's actually going on in school. Not, not be, are, are behind the times and what's going on in schools, okay? And I'm curious, and I, see, I think this is, is something terrific, okay? And I think it's something that really needs to get out there, and I'm glad we're getting it out there today. But my, my question is, as you folks are involved in teaching, making people better teachers, creating teachers, where do you think we are in terms of the education schools, okay, and the way schools are today? Uh, the way K-12 is versus the way education schools are teaching to work in it. Okay, Angela, that's a toughie. <laughs> oh, Larry, okay. I was thinking about how I want to jump into this question because um... – Well, you know, every, every, all the, I, I, every professor that I talk to in the field of education, okay, really wants to do uh -huh. the very best they can and create a, a, a great teacher for today's schools. Then I talk mm -hmm. to – other people, and they say, oh, no, the education schools are way behind what we really need here. What's your thought on that? Let me ask it that way. Well, um, yeah. Because I think you guys are dead on with something here. This is very important to change that paradigm, to change a teacher's perspective, to change a school district's perspective 
so they understand where these kids are coming from. That's very, very important. That creates an engaged student. Okay, but when you talk to your fellows over over the University of Michigan, again, congratulations. Okay, Mr. Harbaugh, Coach Harbaugh. All right, talk to me. <laughs> Okay. Where, where, what, what do you get? What sense do you get from School of Education in Michigan? There you go. But, uh, Which right. I know is a good think, school. Please don't misunderstand. Yeah, but I'm just yeah, curious. no, 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 no. And I and I think we have an, an excellent and outstanding um, teacher education program that focuses on teaching practices. Um, so it, your your question is really complex, and I just kind of want to peel away like, some of the layers of it, Larry. So one, I think that. Um, the kind, the kind of people who are saying that schools of education are behind the times are probably people who don't understand education well. They're all, the, the, thing, the challenge with education, Larry, is that, you know, everybody goes to school. It's compulsory in this country. Oh, yeah. And so everybody yeah. thinks That's they what, know something about think, school. Everybody has their own. what they did. Exactly. Exactly. Every, yeah, everybody has their we're, own expertise, right? Exactly. Not to deny that. We're saying people's lives matter. We're, we're, we're saying that here. But. When we dig into what does it really mean to become a teacher who's engaged in issues of justice, that's when things get really hard because schools in this country, I mean, it's, it's a, um, I mean, it's, it's a, there's a lot of institutional momentum around how things happen. There's a lot of policy, you know, at high state and federal levels that drive um, what, that trickle down and drive what happens in classroom practice. And so when um, classroom practice gets translated into a test score, you know, high stakes testing and yeah. so forth, then teachers often feel constrained by that. Like my responsibility is yeah. to ensure my kids get that good test score rather than thinking about what can I do that's going to matter in the here and now and help my students, for example, to use STEM to make a difference in their lives. And so exactly. for a lot of people, they see that as in contradiction. We don't see that as in contradiction. In fact, all of our studies where we've worked to implement a rightful presence lens actually shows that kids are achieving and doing on tasks that um, relate to the science standards and so forth. And so it's um, – but teachers are made really vulnerable in the system, and that I think oh, is they what are. makes it really hard. Mm -hmm. There you and are. The, and the system is a bureaucracy. I, I, I'm going to say this: the system is a bureaucracy. If you don't believe yeah. that, it's rough to work in. Ask Franz Kafka; he'll tell you how hard it is to work in. Okay. Right. And so exactly. believe me, I, I I get it. Okay. You know, everybody's always concerned. They want the they want the schools. Everybody wants the schools to be better. All the professionals mm -hmm. out there. It's tough mm -hmm. out there. Even PBS covered it last evening by coincidence. Okay, the mental health challenges, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to ask my question a different way, okay? And and, and then I'm going to go to you, and that was a good answer, Ange, but I'm going to go to Edna, okay? Edna, okay, as you teach, you're a great teacher. Are you using rightful presence in your class? I'm introducing yeah. rightful presence, yes, in the college classes I'm teaching and also in the research good. classes that we're teaching. And what's the reactions to it? Your students. I love it. Uh, I think it's great. The, the, yeah, so the reaction, the reaction is it takes a while, right? And so what we are proposing uh, and building on what Angie just said is that we are very clear that this is not, this is not easy to do, right? And we, we are essentially advocating for the disruption of, of tradition 
in Western teaching and learning. And doing it. we are saying that there is, it is contingent on allied political struggles, right? We have to find allies and other stakeholders who are willing to engage in this struggle for rightful presence for youth who are historically minoritized. And so this also goes back to your earlier question, Larry, when you said that the education is behind. Um, I think that perspective is also narrow if we only look at who are considered to be the people who have to bring about educational change. And it's also partly related to how our, like you said, bureaucracy and infrastructure, right? How oh, yeah. higher ed is, 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 is siloed, right? So like in school of education, you have the policy people away from the curriculum <laughs> people, away from the teacher education people. And that honestly does not make a lot of sense. Right, because for something to happen and be sustainable in a middle school, we need buy-in from the teacher and the coach and the principal and the administrator going up to the superintendent. So we can say that all these people belong to different categories if we look at organizing structure historically. But Angie and I are arguing that we need to bring coalitions of people who have historically been siloed to come together for allied political struggle. So that is really difficult to do. We are also arguing that that is necessary to do because for all the years that education has been failing, so to speak, right, to embrace and support all students, we see in the classrooms and, and with, with the teachers and the kids that they keep bidding, right? They keep bidding for rightful presence. They have resilience. And how do we honor that and, and build from that in ways that are consequential is why we are pushing for this framework. And, and also, I'm just going to say, you know, you, 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 you're from Singapore. You taught there for six years. That's a very homogeneous society there, if I, from what I've read. Okay? And you come, you come here to North Carolina, which is a very diverse society. All right? And bring your eyes and your experience to this. Okay? You'll, you'll see things that we don't see. And, and the fact that you fast saw this and then worked with Angela to make this a terrific book out. Okay, it's really something, and it's time to change the perspective. I mean, it really and truly is. And this, you know, we've got the chronic absenteeism, all that sort of stuff. That's because kids are disengaged. And if we get re-engaged and take it from their point of view, we're going to be that much better. Ladies, we have to leave, but I got to tell you, you are you have hit on something here. Rightful presence, I love it. Okay, thank you, Dr. Barton. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. And Dr. Tan, thank you. Okay. It's, it's thank you so much for here. having us, Larry. Oh, thank you believe so much. Me, my, my pleasure. Good luck with the book. Okay. Thank okay. you both very, thank very you. much. Take care. Bye-bye. Have okay, a good thank day. You. Stay warm. Okay. Stay warm. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. Okay. From Michigan and North Carolina, that's Ed Tan and Angela Calabrese-Barton, great professors uh, at uh, UNC uh, Greensboro and uh, Angela University of Michigan. All right, over in Ann Arbor, teaching toward rightful presence in middle school STEM. We're going to archive the show over at ace-ed.org. Check out everything we do. I'm Larry Jacobs, Pre-K-12 Education Talk Radio. Thanks so much for listening.